What a beautiful song of God's great provision for us. I don't know if this is your first time in the church or your thousandth time, but I want you to know all sermons are based on God's provision for us. And so that's what you're going to hear today uh, throughout this word. If we've not met before, my name is Samuel Mock. I'm one of our directors here at College Hill Presbyterian Church, and we're glad you've chosen to worship with us this morning. We are in a series called How It Started and How It's Going. The point of this series is that we wanted to look back at the first church and the acts of the Holy Spirit through that church in order for us to then see where is God taking his church now in the present and in the future. I want you to know that we're studying the book of Acts, and many people call the book of Acts the Acts of the Apostles, but if we're honest, it's really the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. And that Holy Spirit is embodied within us today. So when we see the first church do amazing things, know that God can do amazing things through us as well. If you weren't here last week, we celebrated our 170th year of sharing God's good news. Amen. Can we clap for that? God's doing great things to this church. We outlasted COVID. That means God is not done with us. So let's look at the first church to see where does God want to take this church. Allow me to pray for us and we'll dive into our scripture today. Heavenly Father, bring peace to us now, here before you, God. Let no distraction come between us and what you have to say to us, Lord. Calm our hearts, still our spirits. Soften our hearts that we may be open to you, O Lord. Help me to honor the word that you've given me and to glorify your name. It's in your Holy Son, Christ Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. So when I was told that I'd be preaching this week, I looked at the verses and I was like, oh, I'm preaching on a sermon. So now I was like, maybe I'll just read the whole thing to y'all and dip out. So... Hope y'all got lunch plans. No, but but really I'm preaching on a sermon. It's the first Christian sermon, as many call it. It's the sermon by Peter at Pentecost. This sermon was given over 2,000 years ago, and its truths still hold weight today for God's church. I want you to know that this word is a tough word, and it's also a good word. I want to give you context before we jump into the verses because I don't assume that you've been here each week uh, as I have. So on Easter, we celebrated the fact that Jesus was crucified for our sins. He died and he rose again. And this is what has happened in the scriptures. There's then been 40 days where Jesus has appeared to his disciples and taught and encouraged them for what was to come, which is the church. Jesus, before ascending to heaven, he would tell 
his disciples, I'm going to send a comforter. It is good that I go so that I can send him. And so then at an event called Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, that comforter, is poured out on God's people. It's described as flaming tongues that rest on the heads of the people. And its effect allows the people to glorify God by speaking all of the great things he had done in the native languages of all of those around. So people from all around with different dialects are hearing God's goodness in their own native tongue. It'd be like if we had an assembly of the world here today and each person could hear God's goodness in their tongue, even though we may only know one language. The Jews, not understanding what's happening, they're like, oh, these cats is drunk. And then this is when Peter and the disciples stand up and begin to educate them on what's happening. He's like, no, they're not drunk. It's nine o'clock in the morning. Who gets drunk at nine o'clock in the morning? Peter begins to quote the book of Joel. And if you aren't familiar with the book of Joel, it's a book on the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a day in which God will come to conquer all evil. And that's good news. We hate evil. That's also scary news because we are evil. We have sin in our heart. And so what Peter is telling the people is that judgment is coming. The book of Joel refers to the last days. And what Peter is saying is the last days are upon us. Now, you may say that was 2,000 years ago. So what you mean last days? Well, know that God's timing and our timing look very different. We get in a rush if someone's driving 20 and it takes us two minutes longer to get to our destination. But God's been there before time and will be there after time. And so his timing looks different than ours. But be sure of this. We are in the last days. And so Peter is letting them know that this is a fulfilled prophecy and that the last days are upon us. And then he ends the quote with this. Acts 2.21, it says, And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So there's judgment, and then there's salvation. Both are available to us. After this, Peter goes on to make a case for Christ. He's telling them that the Lord, the one that they must call on to be saved, is in fact Jesus Christ. Let's read together Acts 2.22-23. Peter says, Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and for knowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Did you catch that? Peter is accusing them of being guilty of crucifying Christ. 
Know that there's thousands of people here. How do we know this? At the end of the scripture, it says that 3,000 people are saved. Which means that there's more than 3,000 people in this crowd. And this sermon takes place over 50 days since Jesus has died. Certainly not all of these people were there on crucifixion day. I'm sure not all of them had a hammer, yet Peter says they are guilty. Church, I have bad news for you today. We too are guilty of crucifying Christ. This is a concept that Mel Gibson understood. If you don't know who Mel Gibson is, he's the director of Passion of the Christ. He said, I don't want to be in the movie. The only point of the movie that Mel Gibson is present is actually in the hammering in of the nail in a close-up shot. Because he understood that though he was not there all those years ago, his sin put him at the crucifixion site. So yes, Jesus is crucified for our sins. This was part of God's plan to redeem us. As Peter said, Jesus was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. This is because God's response to sin is a holy judgment. There's two times in which God will judge the sins of the world. The first was at the crucifixion scene. And all those who put faith in Jesus Christ, the crucified lamb, their sins are forgiven. The next time God will judge the world, he'll come back and judge all of those again. And those not found in Christ will bear the weight of that judgment. But Jesus, being a sinless sacrifice, paid the cost of our sins for us. Now, sin is kind of a churchy word. You may be asking if this is your first time in church. What, what does this word even mean? It's actually an archery term. It means to miss the mark. It means not hitting the bullseye, or in our case, failure to meet God's perfect standard. It's the reason that Jesus had to be perfect. He had to be sinless, because only he could meet the standard of God, and then his death would pay for our sins. So we've defined what sin is, but what, is it, what does it look like? Sin is when we prefer creation to creator. It's when we believe we're smarter than God or we fail to acknowledge God as the giver of all things good. Preferring creation to creator may look like running into your prayer closet and having a laundry list of things that you want from God. God, I need you to get my money together. You know, I'm struggling. God cares about that. But are you spending time with God? God, I got this cough. I don't know what's going on with this. Could you, could you heal me, Lord? He cares about that. But are you actually spending time with God? Or do you only run to God every time you have a need? As if rubbing the lamp of a genie and asking for your three wishes. This also can look like searching for joy and fulfillment within traveling, 
searching for joy and fulfillment within others or alcohol, money, or sex, turning to things that God has created rather than turning to him. Declaring that we are smarter than God, we would never say these things with our mouth, no, but the way that we respond to him speaks louder than our words. God tells us that only he can fulfill us, and yet we return to our sin. The scriptures say like a dog to its vomit. We make our decisions without consulting God. We're like, I think I'll go here. I'll do this on this day. Yet never asking God, Lord, what do you want from me on this day? How should I spend my time? How can I glorify you? But instead we make our plans about ourselves. Or it can simply be knowing what God tells us to do and doing what we want anyway. It's frustrating for us when we're parents and grandparents and we say, don't, don't do that. Don't touch that. Don't put that in your mouth. And yet we do the same thing to God. He's like, I wish, I wish you wouldn't do that. It's like, okay. And we do it anyway. Why? And finally, we fail to acknowledge God as the giver of all good things. That looks like saying, man, I earned this. My talents have brought me here. This is my hard work. And while we are called to work hard and glorify God with our talents, but when we don't point that glory to him, we are guilty of sin. How foolish of us to say that I got myself here when our next breaths depend on God's permission. We fail to thank God. It's a joke in my household from time to time. We'll start to eat. And then we'll be like, ooh, I forgot to pray. But don't we know that every meal that we have is a gift from God? I think about our social media accounts. Social media can be a beautiful thing. It's a way that we can spread God's good news across the world to people that we don't see regularly. But I find more and more often our social media looks like, look at me, look at me, look what I'm doing, look at me, all while declaring to God, I'm the captain now. We want to run our own lives. So yes to, we are guilty of sin just as those before Peter that day, even though we were not there. It is because of our sin that Jesus was crucified so that God's plan would be fulfilled and his wrath would be satisfied. This is how those who call on the Lord will be saved. This truth is written all throughout scripture. Isaiah 53, 5 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Romans 6, 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. John three sixteen to 17 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This is the good news of the gospel. Judgment is coming, but we do not have to bear the weight of it. We have a Savior who loves us and who has done this for us. Those who are in Christ Jesus will be saved. And understand something. Today, you, this may be your first time in church or you may be visiting and thinking, how do I clean myself up? How do I get it together? Well, there's good news and there's bad news. The bad news is you can never do it. But the good news is Jesus has done it. You don't have to clean yourself up. God saw our filthiness, our brokenness, our ugly thoughts and said, I'll die for them. I love them. And so he sent Jesus Christ to take our place. We couldn't meet God's standards, so Jesus did it for us. This is the gospel. Peter continues in Acts 2, 24 to 36, after accusing them of being the ones that crucified Jesus. He says, But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, my tongue rejoiced. My body also will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have been made, sorry, you have made known to me the path of life, and you will fill me with joy in your presence. So Peter begins to quote David, and then he addresses the crowd again. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch, David, died and was buried. And his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place on his descendants, place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did he his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you see and hear. So, He's just given this long-winded answer. What's happening? I think they're drunk. No, this is what you see. This has come to fruition that God has sent his son to die for us and now has poured out his Holy Spirit upon us to be with us. He continues. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said... The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 
Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. As I said, Peter's making a case for Christ, that he is the Lord and the Messiah. He's making it plain to them. At first he was hinting at it, and now he's getting down to the specifics. Jesus was crucified for our sins. And it was impossible, as Peter says, for the grave to hold him. Why? Because he was sinless. He was perfect. It's why we needed him to atone for our sins. Because death belongs to those who are sinful. So when Jesus bore the weight of our sin, he did it without becoming sinful himself. It's why God raised him from the dead. David's prophecy shows us, as Peter said, that this was God's plan all along. David would live many years before Jesus was ever born. In fact, he's like his great-great-great-grandfather. And the good news, my friends, is this, that Jesus' empty grave means that we, too, have victory over death. If we believe this good news that Jesus Christ died for we will die, but we will be raised anew again. This good news led the Apostle Paul to later write this in 1 Corinthians 5, 54 to 57. It says, when the perishable, that's us, has been clothed with the imperishable, that's Christ, and the mortal has been and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's return to Pentecost as Peter has accused them of crucifying Christ. And now he's made it known to them that Jesus is the Lord and the Messiah, the only way to be saved. He finishes his sermon. And when the people heard this, Acts 2, 37 to 41, it says, When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized for every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you, your children, and for all of who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted this message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. You may find yourself in that same position saying, what shall we do? This news, it's, it's hard to stomach. What shall we do? Well, I'll tell you, we always 
respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there are only two responses. We either submit to Jesus or we harden our hearts. Each decision we make is a step towards God and his love for us or a step away from it. Maybe today is the day that you find yourself needing to respond, to repent, to turn away from the things that you've tried to fill your life with, the things that can never satisfy, and to turn to God, the one who loves you, the one who sent his son for you, Jesus. If that is you today, we have prayer stations at the end of our service. We would love to pray with you and for you as you make that decision. And we on staff would love to talk to you about baptism. Maybe you've been following God for some time now and you say, what shall we do? How do I further respond to the love that Jesus Christ has given to me? This love that he offers, how do I respond? Well, let's look at Acts 2, 42 to 47 to see how the church would continue to respond. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to fellowship, to breaking bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So if you're following Christ, our, our response then is to be devoted to his teachings. It says they were devoted to the apostles' teachings. That for us is our scriptures, the Bible. It's not, it's not good enough to come to church on Sunday and get a word and then go home unaffected the rest of the week. No, it's, it's more than that. We're called to draw near to God that we may understand his love for us more and more. The more that we open up his scriptures and spend time with him, not just with a laundry list of things that we want done, but spending time with him because of who he is, he will reveal the depths of his love for us. It says they broke bread together daily, which means they lived life in community. We are called to do this, to strengthen one another, to pray for one another, and to regularly celebrate the things that God is doing amongst us and for our friends and our family. We're to keep in awe of God and his wonderful deeds, encouraging one another along the way. This is why we have our growth groups. It's an opportunity for us to join in with one another and do this exact thing. It says that they lived generously. They sold property to meet the needs of others. They had experienced the sacrificial love and that sacrificial love led them to then love others sacrificially. This is what we are called to as Christians. Because we've experienced this love 
our heart then cries out to then respond in it, to rush to meet the needs of others because we've had our own needs met. And then the scriptures say, the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. This is an attractive way of living. If we live like this, the outside world can't help but look in and wonder what's going on. And God blesses this, living in response to Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. So let it be so with us. Let us live forever in awe of God, his love for us, and the work he is doing. Let's point one another to the truth of this beauty, this beautiful gospel, and let's tell others about the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. It's a tough word, Father. I struggled to even give it. But I know that your truth, grace, and love is what it points us to. God, we are thankful for what you were doing here, through us. And more than that, Father, we are thankful for what you've done for us. Father, I lift up any of those wrestling with who you are. Father, I I pray for those struggling with health. I pray for the families of Tom Brinkman and Cheryl Marahue. Losing our loved ones is hard, God. But you promise to be there with us, to comfort us through your Holy Spirit. And so I, I pray that you would comfort those, not only those, but all under the sound of my voice who need you, Lord. Father, I pray for Alan Rainey. Sorry, Ann Rainey at the Liberty Nursing Center. For Thurman Hudson, who's healing from stage five kidney disease. God, I pray for Alan and McKinney, our sound man, and Bernice Davis, our worship leader. As they heal from their surgeries, Father, would you come alongside them? Heal their bodies, Lord. Father, I pray for Jen McKinney, who's recovering from a car accident, and for the family and friends of Carol Brown and Tom Brinkman. And Father, we pray for Cora Malin as she moves on to San Francisco. Would you be with her and guide her and protect her, Lord? Father, more than that, I just pray for everyone under the sound of my voice that they would be drawn near to you, O oh God. Would you reveal your love to them on a deeper level on this day? I pray this in your Holy Son, Christ Jesus' name. Amen.